We've got uh, three more reasons why Israel was overthrown in the wilderness. There was five uh, things that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, discusses here. We looked at the first one, which is lust, or basically that's just a longing. Now, you got to remember here, the reason why they're doing these things is because they didn't hear or didn't, weren't listening to the Word of God. And all five of these are actually running off of one another, which means when you stop hearing the Bible, stop reading your Bible, stop caring what God says, what's going to happen is that you're going to long after things that you ought not long after. And then it moves on to the next uh, thing, and that is, I'm going to look at number two here, idolatry. That means there's something in your life that becomes more important than God. And that's a natural progression of leaving off from the scriptures and not walking according to the word of God. The third one we're going to look at today is, where am I here? Fornication. Now, fornication, of course, you say, well, that's not always the result of, uh, of a Christian not obeying the scripture, but there's different aspects of fornication I want to talk about today. And so we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10. Verse number eight, we'll read that one verse to start. We'll get into the other ones as we get there. Hopefully I'm going to get through this one and, and pass into the next ones as well. But v- verse number eight, it says, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. And so notice the verse right off the bat, we say, okay, not everybody that doesn't obey the word of God or, or maybe isn't putting the word of God in a primary place in their life is actually going to commit fornication. And is it interesting in the passage, it says, and some of them committed. So what happens is the chances of you becoming sexually impure because you're not following the scripture is, is stronger. But it doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean that uh, everybody that doesn't follow the Bible is going in that direction or not. But there in that passage, it just kind of gives us that insight. It says, as some of them committed. Some of them. Now, they were all kind of not following the Lord, but some of them went further than the rest. And so that's very important for us to understand here. Now, the word fornication is from the Greek word pornos, and it really just means to play the harlot. Pornos is where we get our word pornography from. And so pornography is fornication. So if you're involved in pornography, you're committing fornication. And so it's not always the act or the, the impure lifestyle that we're talking about here involving other people, if you're watching pornography, you're involved in pornography, you're in this particular problem right here, and you're committing fornication. And that's a result of what? It's a result of wrong longings. It's a result of idolatry. Something else has become more important than God in your life, and that's the third step, all right? And so a lot of people here, um, I forget the... Um, the stats on this, but it's a very high statistic in evangelical churches anyways, hopefully not so much within uh, the Baptist churches, uh, independent Baptists anyways, but there's a high percentage of people that are involved in pornography even in churches today. And that ought not be so. There ought not be one man here that's involved with that. Or woman, you know, uh, none of us. 
And so that, the Bible says to flee fornication in the scriptures. It talks about uh, that it ought not be once named among you as become of saints. Are you adjusting my mic here, son? If you can just pull that lower uh, mids down, that would be great. In Numbers chapter 25, we're going to look at the particular um, situation that they're talking about here. In verse number one, it says, And Israel abode in, in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined themselves unto Baal, Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Notice, some of them, not all of them, but some of them were involved in things that they ought not be involved with. It goes on to say, Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation, and he took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, and him the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God." and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Selu, the prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianitish woman that was slain was Cosby, the, the daughter of Zer. He was head over a people and of a chief house in Midian. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Vex the Midianites and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they have beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the prince of, the, of Midian, their sister, which was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. And so basically what's happening here, of course, you know the account of Balaam and how that the, uh, the king of Moab was trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. And of course, that God would not do, even though uh, Balaam went out above the people and looked down and they were waiting for him to curse him. He couldn't curse him. And one of the telltale phrases in his blessing was the fact that he found no iniquity in Jacob, which means that there is no curse when there's no sin inside. Amen? If there's sin inside, that's where the curse comes from. So basically what, what he's saying there, and this is what Balaam learned from this. Instead of praising God for what was taking place, what Balaam did is he learned that in order to take down Israel, he has to put sin inside the camp. And that's when he gave instruction to the king of Moab to send the women into the camp of Israel. And that's exactly what took place. And so fornication took place because of that. 
And of course, uh, 24,000 died. Now you say, yeah, but in our other passage, there's 23,000. Well, this is 23,000 in one day. So what we know is that, in, that the total amount was 24,000. 23,000 died the very day that it took place, and 1,000 died after that day. <laughs> Amen. And so there is no controversy. In fact, I think the Lord puts those kind of things in the Scripture to test us in our faith of the Word of God. Amen. And so just so you know that. And so this particular thing is referred to in the Scripture as the doctrine of Balaam. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast hit there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And so notice the, the doctrine here. The doctrine is all about stumbling people so that they sin. That's the doctrine of Balaam. And so we have to be careful, as God's people, that we don't get involved in fornication. The sin of causing others to stumble and, and commit sin uh, in the eyes of God. Uh, sometimes we Christians do need to strengthen their conscience. So I'm not saying that just because a Christian has a weak conscience, like we say in the scripture, that we're just supposed to always just cater to them and you know don't do anything that will upset them. That's not what it's talking about. But what it's talking about is unjustly uh, putting a stumbling block in front of them when they're not ready to handle it, when they don't have the ability or the maturity to handle the problem. Uh, it's not about just catering and, and bowing down to every need of a weak Christian and saying, well, I think this is wrong. And I, well, okay, well then, you know, I mean, that would be a mess of a church if that were to take place. We can't do that. But at the same time, we must not stumble those with a weak conscience as uh, this may result in a conscience in their life that is less sensitive. And so what I really like about someone that's just been saved is the fact that they do have a very sensitive conscience. A lot of things bother them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, there are some things that bother them, maybe that necessarily should not be bothering them. But that is, doesn't mean that we go to them and start uh, you know, flippantly doing things because, well, that shouldn't bother you. You know what I mean? we, we got to be careful because we have to develop the conscience of the weak believer in our church. And that takes care and it takes time. It's not just something we just brashly go in, well, the Bible doesn't say, and we, we put this attitude out there, and thereby we're actually stumbling the weak believer and then causing them to be less sensitive to the truth and so forth. I would rather somebody err on the side of too sensitive than not sensitive enough. Amen? And so if they're oversensitive, take it easy with them. <laughs> let's, let's let them grow progressively. You know, if they're not sensitive, well, then we need to sensitize them to the truth. Amen. But anyways, uh, and so that's what the doctrine of Balaam is. Doctrine of Balaam, uh, just like he did with Israel there, is, find, is go in there and put a stumbling block into Israel to cause them to fail. And he did that for personal gain. He did that to gain something personally. And so you put yourself first instead of others, and then you stumble the people uh, that are in the church or that are in the group. In Jude 11, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. And so um, I don't have much more to say about this, but the scriptures do speak of spiritual 
fornication, spiritual fornication. Uh, I think in even Revelation where it talks about Jezebel, uh, causes, caused them to commit fornication, isn't always necessarily talking about the physical life. I think that there's people that'll come in, and Jezebel especially is a woman that is not submissive, is loud and stubborn, and what they want to do is turn people towards themselves and cause them to follow them instead of following the truth and following the leadership of the church and so forth, always causing problems. That's a Jezebel, <laughs> Amen. And the scriptures tell us, and there, there was a, a charge that Jesus made against the church, that they actually allowed, they suffered Jezebel to work within that church. And that ought not be so. So obviously the onus is put upon us that if we see these kind of things happening, we have to stop them. Or we'll have the Lord Jesus Christ to answer to. Because he says, I have somewhat against thee, thou sufferest Jezebel. And she commits fornication and causes people to turn away from the truth. And there's a spiritual fornication that can take place within the house of God. And it's very common, folks. It's not that uncommon, especially within Bible-believing churches. Because if there's a way the devil's going to work, he's going to come into churches that hold the scriptures at a high value and try to get people to turn away from that. Now, if I don't have the scriptures on a high pedestal here, well, then why would he care? <laughs> why would he care? We're all, we're all committing spiritual fornication anyways. Amen? But if we're trying to stay pure to the scripture and do what God wants us to do, you can be sure there's going to be people coming in here that the devil will use to try to draw you away from the leadership and the, and the instruction of the word of God. And you just can't allow that to take place. And the Bible says you should not suffer that. Don't allow that if that happens within the house of God. Tell me about it for crying out loud. If you don't tell the leadership about these things going on, you will be held accountable before the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, don't this whole thing, well, I just want to cause any problem. You are causing problems by not <laughs> being honest about what's going on. Amen? There's people that could be hurt. There's families that could be out of the will of God. And so we owe it to the Lord. We owe it to him to protect them. And it's not, folks, one thing I know about dealing with sin in the church, it's never comfortable. And it's never fun. And it's something I dread doing, but I will do it every time because we have to. We have to keep our church pure. We have to protect the people, amen? It's about you guys. I want to make sure you're going to be okay, you know? And so that's what it's about. Anyways, let's move on to our next point. So after, after we uh, have the wrong longings, after we uh, commit idolatry and something becomes more important than God in our life, and then we begin to uh, be a part of fornication, getting involved in things that we ought not be getting involved with. Now what's happening is we're tempting the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what 1 Corinthians 9, 10, 9 says. It says, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Notice some of them again, not everybody, <laughs> you know, not all the people in the church, not all the Israelites, but some of them, some of them started tempting the Lord. And you know what? You can be sure in the house of God, there are people that tempt the Lord. They, they think that, he, oh, he's just a God of grace. He's never going to do, I can do whatever I want. Folks, why would he admonish us about tempting him if he's not going to deal with things the way he dealt with Israel? Amen? He's giving this warning to us. Don't tempt him. Don't put him to the test on these things. Amen? Uh, the word tempt means to try or prove, to put to the test. 
And so we, we, many times we tempt God in our sin. Israel spake against God by openly complaining about God's provision and guidance. This is an aspect of tempting. So when God is doing something for you and he's taking care of your family and you may not have everything you necessarily want, you may not have the best house or the best car or maybe not eating the best food or whatever it is, but you know what you have is, is something that God gave you. Amen? What you got to be careful of is when you start this complaining spirit because that's tempting Christ. That's tempting him. In Numbers 21, verse 5, it says, And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. <laughs> now, the problem is, that's the bread that God sent you. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord and he would he, that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And that's why we sing the song, Look and Live. Amen. And anyways, let's move on. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So Israel tempted God in the wilderness ten times after they already had seen God do marvelous works. So think about this. Ten. That's the, that's the number that the Bible tells us. So what I know about that is this. That when you get saved, God gives a lot of grace to you. That means you're going to go through times where you will tempt him. And it won't be because you, and it's be kind of because you don't have full knowledge of really how sovereign God is over your life and how he's trying to help you and what he's giving you and how he's bringing you through. Maybe you just don't see God that way. You know, maybe you don't see that God really cares. And so what happens is you begin to complain about it. You begin to look down or belittle the fact of what you're going through in life not realizing that there's not one thing that happens to you as a child of God that he has not given permission for. Look at Job, <laughs> you know. Uh, there's two ways that, that you can go through suffering in your life. You can go through suffering because God allows it, or you can go through suffering because you allow it. Those are the two ways. I mean, it's maybe not necessarily what God wants, but because of your lack of, or our lack of uh, putting, you know, guarding ourselves against sin, that we bring suffering into our lives. Amen? Now, God is still good. He'll work it together for good if we begin to love him and confess and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, we need to understand if we're right with the Lord, that there is nothing in your life that he does not allow in your life. You understand that? So now think, I'm going to turn against that. I'm going to start bellyaching. I'm going to start looking down on my life and uh, despising the life that, I, that I've been given or the family or the church or the whatever. That's why it's a serious thing when those things happen in your life. If God brought you there, uh, I tell you this, this is mostly how it goes. Everybody comes to the church because it's the will of God. Very few leave because of the will of God. You understand that? <laughs> Most people come to church 
because they're doing the will of God and they'll actually verbalize that. So why do you think, and folks, I'm not one of these preachers that you know, tries to get the fishing rod and reel you in because, oh, no, you do come here and don't come anywhere else. I'll say, hey, if God's leading you here, then you ought to be here. But if you shouldn't be here, then don't be here. <laughs> Amen. But I think you obviously should be here. And so what that means is you're here by the will of God. But it's interesting when, the, when people leave, they don't have that same sentiment. They don't say, well, this is the will of God for me. And they wouldn't be able to find scripture to back up <laughs> their decision. You know what I mean? And sometimes God does move you. He usually never moves you in a lateral way. He moves you in an upward way for the good of your family. Maybe it's a doctrinal problem. Something like that's going on in the situation. Amen? Then he moves you. But it's going to be the, for the betterment, not for the becoming worse. Not because I don't like this church and I'm going to go find one I like that, that caters more to what I want. <laughs> well, that's tempting Christ. You're tempting him. You're not happy with what he's given you, and you become somewhat, uh, you know, disgruntled because of that. So Israel tempted God ten times. This is after they saw God do marvelous, marvelous works. In Psalm 95, verse 8, it says this, Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation. <laughs> there we go. Why were they overthrown? Because of this. They were tempting him. It says, and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Unto whom I swear in my wrath, they should not enter into my rest. So you as a Christian, now we know that there is a rest that remaineth unto the people of God. We know that in heaven, you're going to experience that eternal rest. But you know, you can go through your whole life on earth and never truly have rest in your soul as a believer of God. God says, yeah, I'm not going to give you rest because you've been tempting me. You've not been content with the things that I've done for you and, and doing in your life. And you've turned against me. And so he's not going to give you peace in that. <laughs> Amen. And that's what he's saying there. So, so it says, harden not your hearts as in the day of the provocation, as in the day of the provoking, where the people provoked God and they poked him and they, they tempted him and all that he was doing for them in their lives. In Numbers 14, verse 22, it says, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these 10 times and have not hearkened to my voice. They're not hearing God's word. They keep some reason why I don't have to listen. Some reason why I don't have to submit in this. And constantly tempting, tempting God. And so it goes on to say, Surely they have not see, they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Wow. So what is the land? Aren't you glad it's not talking about heaven there? <laughs> the land of Canaan isn't the picture of heaven. I mean, there could be heavenly things in the land of Canaan, but the land of Canaan isn't heaven. The land of Canaan is the will of God. The land of Canaan is that place where you know that you're smack dab within what God wants you to do and what you're called to do. And so you as a, as a Christian, one of your major goals in life is to enter the land of Canaan. What you want to do is find the will of God for yourself. You know, you can't fabricate it. It's not something you have to make up 
or say, oh, I don't know what it is, so I better come up with something quick. That's not what it is. What it is is God will lead you there. And when you get there, you will discover it. <laughs> Amen? And that's the way God works. He rarely gives you information before you need it. <laughs> Amen? That's the way it was with me anyways. Uh, a lot of people, that's why a lot of people say, well, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. and say, oh, sure you will. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've just learned more than that over the years, you know. But a lot of people want to fabricate the will of God. They just want to make the will of God something that, this is what I want to do. This is in my heart to do. Well, it might be in your heart to do, but sometimes you got to take the things that are in your heart to do and put them at the cross. And let God be the one that calls you into the Canaan land. Amen. But he says there will be some of them that will not see the land. They will not see the land. You know how many Christians there are that will not see the land? I guarantee you, I wouldn't doubt that a majority of believers will not see the land of the will of God for their lives. Majority. That's how strong this world is. Look at Israel. How many of that whole group, when they actually were sent into the wilderness for 40 years, how many of them actually did walk in? Well, all the children underneath 20, <laughs> you know, and the two adults. Two adults. That's a pretty bad odd. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we have to be careful. We can't just say that, oh, everybody's just the occasional one that doesn't find the will of God. No, it's almost the occasional one does do the will of God. And you have to say, that's going to be me. That's got to be your choice. I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going into the promised land. I'm going to defeat the giants. I'm not going to let fear. I'm not going to let sin. I'm not going to let idolatry. I'm not going to let lust keep me out of the will of God. Because if I'm involved in lustful things and I'm involved in things in my life that are more important than God and they're constantly dragging me away from the things of God, if I'm constantly tempting the Lord day after day, I will never see the land. I will never see the land. That's what he wants us to learn. He says, I've given you th these things for an admonition, to admonish you, to warn you, to, to prod you, to provoke you, so that you don't end up like the children in the wilderness. And I just praise God that, you know, I, I feel bad for them, but I praise God we have the example because you know what? We can learn so much from Israel. I've learned more about my Christian life from Israel than any other thing. It's powerful. And when you study Israel, you will learn a lot more about you. Amen? And so here we're learning some of these things. Satan, of course, tried uh, convincing Jesus to tempt God's promise of protection over his life. Of course, this isn't going to work because Jesus is God. He can't sin. Amen? But it's interesting, that's what he wanted him to do. In Matthew 4, verse 5, it says, Then the devil taketh him up into, a holy, into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. So on the temple. Now the temple is where God resides. This is the, if God's on earth, this is where he's going to be. So this is what he says. And he saith unto them, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Now, is that true? Of course, that God protects his people. And he does keep them from dashing their foot against a stone. And many times I was talking to Madeline, uh, not Madeline, Vivian today, when we were driving home and she was asking about angels and so forth. I says, yes. 
Angels are there for you and they do protect you and they do talk to God about it and they do have strategy for your life. They, they know where you need to go. They know how you're going to get there and they know how the enemy is trying to keep you from doing the will of God. So they're constantly intercepting. They're constantly working on your behalf to protect you, to go where you need to go. That is just simply a truth of scripture. That's a powerful thing. You're not alone. Amen. You're not alone. You're under the protection of the Almighty God. But that's not what he was talking about here. That's not what the devil was playing with. The devil was doing exactly what he did with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Causing them to tempt God. Push it. Push it further than it needed to go outside of the will of God. Tempting the Lord is making light of God's promises by foolish and thoughtless behavior. That's what it is, tempting the Lord. We've been given much from the Lord, but we must keep an attitude of gratefulness and a reverence while claiming the promises of God. That's why, you know, some of these guys, you know, ultimately, if you're going to keep testing your mortality, and you're going to keep pushing that boundary, one day it will, you will fail. How many times have we heard about these guys? And sure, we like watching it on TV. We like seeing these daredevils. We like, you know what? But ultimately, that will take them. The one man who did that big swing off the cliff, and it was a world record, and he went off the line, and he went down, I don't know how many, a mile of rope, and just, it was this phenomenal. And so what he did is he, beat that record, and then after that weekend, they went to clean up all the ropes, and while he got there, he was so tempted to do it again, he says, I'm going to try it one more time before we clean up the ropes, and he did, and that's when it ripped. And he felt, I don't, I don't know how many feet, I think it was close to a mile or something like that. Terrible. Over the weekend, the weather had worn away the ropes and caused it to become weak enough that it tore. See, that inner desire for you to always push those lines and tempt God. Oh, God will protect me. You know, there, there comes a time where God says, you know, you push too far. And we've got to be careful as Christians, especially with God's economy, with the church, and with the things that he's given you. Don't push him. <laughs> Don't push too far. God will protect you. He's going to guide you. He's going to bless you. <laughs> you know, but be careful because you can easily cross that line. And I think that'd be a terrible thing to be involved with. The last thing we're going to see here is murmuring. Verse number 10, it says, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Murmur is a word divide, derived from the sound made when murmuring or muttering in a low and indistinct voice with the idea of complaint to murmur or to mutter. And so basically, we know that this has been a part of their problem while they're, you know, while they're lusting, while they're involved in idolatry, the fornication, there's, there's murmuring involved in all of that. But this final step is where you just become this critic. That's the final line. Folks, when it's someone just becomes a critic and all they do is complain and murmur about everything, 
The church isn't good enough. The pastor's not good enough. Our Sunday school teachers aren't good enough. Those classrooms aren't good enough. Oh, this building, it's okay, but it's just not good enough. <laughs> you know, and, and just murmur, 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 murmur. That's, that tells you there's a lot of steps that have already taken place in that person's life. Be careful about giving ear to that kind of stuff. Amen? Israel murmured against Moses after the Lord dealt with Korah and his rebellion. And this was very interesting here. Numbers 16, verse 41. It says, But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. And it came to pass when the congregation gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that it may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. In verse, chapter 16, verse 49, it says, now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them that died about the matter of Korah. So basically, Korah was a rebel. He came to Moses and thought he ought to have a position of leadership too. He thought, why do you think, why, why, why do you think that you're so good that you're the only one that God will use? That's a common thing to be said in a church, by the way. <laughs> and so... They figured that out by putting out the, everybody brought their staff, the leaders of their homes, and God chose which one would be the leader, and he chose Aaron's rod, and that rod budded, showing that my blessing is upon Aaron as the leader of the Levites and as the high priest and so forth. And in other words, um, they weren't content with the thing that God had given them to do. They wanted to take over the leadership position. That's what took place. Now, that's called rebellion, and the Bible says that the earth swallowed them up. And then there were those that were with them. What they did is they started running away. They thought, of course, if I can just run away from this earthquake and from this, this earth swallow, then I can get free. But they don't realize you can't run from God. And fire came out from the Lord and devoured all those that started to run because they were the guilty ones. Now, that happened that day. Now, the very next day, the people go back to Moses and they start murmuring. You have killed the people of the Lord. Wow. <laughs> and then the plague begun. You see, you got to be careful of that murmuring. That murmuring is very dangerous. It's expressing a rebellious heart and a rebellious attitude. And here, you know, sometimes folks, and I'll just put this application to it, sometimes within the church, we have to deal with problems here. You better not be the next day Christian, murmuring about it. Saying, why did you handle it that way? Why did you do it like this? You know, be careful. Don't become a murmurer. 
It's a dangerous place to be, amen? You got questions, you can come talk to me anytime, you know? But don't murmur. Don't stand in your tent. The low, who do you think they are? It's not happening in the church so much, maybe in the corner somewhere, but mostly at home, sitting around. That's where the murmuring happens, you know? Because these are the people that won't tell on me. You see, let's be careful about that. And I say that because the Bible tells us that he's given these examples as an admonition for us. He says, take note of this. This this is going to hurt you. Don't go that way. Amen. It's not profitable at all. It's not helping anything. Israel murmured against God's choices for them. Ten times we see that in Exodus 16, verse 8. And Moses said, this shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to full for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So Moses says, here, we'll deal with you. We'll give you what you want. But you're murmuring. It's not about us. Your murmuring is you're not content with God. You're not content with what he's doing in your life. You're not content with what he's giving you. And that's why you're murmuring about everything. That's why you're complaining about everything. Folks, don't become a complainer. Amen. I mean, you think something can be done better, by all means, come and talk to me about it. I've had people come and say, hey, what do you think about this? And that? Oh, that's not a bad idea. And so I take all those suggestions, and I go, but somebody's got to make the decision. I mean, unless you want to make all the decisions and everybody looks at you, then they'll come up to you and say, <laughs> then you'll say, Pastor, why don't you take this back? Amen. Christians cannot shine as lights in the world with a murmuring heart. You just will never be used of God. You're not going to become a soul winner. You're not going to be a light. Oh, you'll go and tell somebody the four points of the Romans road. Anybody can do that. We can all recite it, memorize some verses, and talk to somebody about it. And the Lord may, in spite of you, save that person, but it's not a blessing for you. I've seen people not right with God actually lead someone to the Lord because the Lord just loved that person, didn't want them to go to hell. Amen? But the Bible says in Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what we're, hearing, what we're seeing here is, is that what God put inside of you, how that is fleshed out is based upon how you work it out. It's not automatic. In other words, God's putting all kinds of good things inside of you if you allow him to, but you're the one that has to make the choice on how all that good stuff is seen through you. You can decide not to have God seen through you, or you can decide, God, I want them only to see you through me. Amen? So it goes on to say in verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings. How many things? All things. Not one thing we should do should ever have a murmur in it, is what the Bible says. Then it goes on to say that you may be blameless. That means if we're murmuring, we're not blameless. And harmless, that means if we're murmuring, we're causing harm. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. That means what we're reflecting, our relationship with the Father. That when we are a person that will not murmur and complain we are showing the world what the Father is like. We're, we're a son of God. Amen? It says without rebuke. That means if you've got that kind of heart 
and you're not a murmurer, it's going to be very hard to throw mud at you and make it stick. Amen? They'll try throwing mud at you, but it just won't stick. It won't stick. But if you're a murmurer, it'll stick. <laughs> All right? Then it goes on to say, In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Murmuring in the scripture, if you go right to the end of the Bible in the book of Jude, is truly a mark of the ungodly and a mark of those that great judgment will fall upon. And we see that in Jude 14. It says that Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They're talking pretty good. Yeah, but the problem is there's something they're trying to get advantage of. And they're murmurers, they're complainers. And judgment will fall upon them. Amen? So the Lord is giving us more than enough warning on how not to fall into temptation, how not to follow the example of Israel, how not to be overthrown in the wilderness. If we can just take these five things and say, you know what, Lord, I am not going to be involved in these. And if I am, Lord, please remind me, help me to catch myself before it gets to the next level in my life. But all I know is this, if you're a critic already and all you do is criticize, you're on level five. Level five. That's pretty dangerous. <laughs> That's a dangerous place. And all that a level five uh, person has to look forward to is the judgment. Don't ever get to level five. You may murmur a bit. Like Israel, they murmured right off the start. They murmured right out of the gate. <laughs> they really did. Because they didn't understand life. And they didn't understand what, what they were supposed to do with it. They didn't understand who God was. But you know, God, God began to catch them later and saying, you know what, these men, they have seen my works. They have witnessed my miracles. There's no more excuse. Amen? So in your life, is there no more excuse? <laughs> well, then we better catch ourselves. Now there's going to be weak Christians coming in. Don't treat them like a level five murmurer because they just don't understand. Amen? Because 10 times they tempted Christ. And God's counting. He's saying, okay, guys, I'm giving you a little patience and long suffering here. I'm showing you more. I'm, I'm, I'm revealing myself to you so that you can know that you don't have to complain. You know I'll take care of you. But when they hit that, that border at the Jordan River, at, at Kadesh Barnea, and they refused to go in, God says, you had all the lessons that you, you needed. I gave you everything I possibly could have taught you where you could have chosen to do right and you still chose to do wrong. And so now you will be overthrown. Wow, that's powerful. Amen, that's powerful. 
let's be sure that we're not following that example. <laughs> let's learn from the admonition. Next week, I plan on just going to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and just going through the steps of how it is that we can overcome practically in our life temptation. I just want to get these, these marks, you know, before us. So we, are we here? <laughs> are we involved with this? Guys, are you involved in pornography? Can I ask you to repent of that? Could I ask you to get rid of that with whatever you got to do? Throw your phone in the garbage, throw it into the lake. I don't care what you got to do. Uh, get rid of your computer, get rid of your TV. Uh, there is no price that is too high to remove yourself from fornication because the next step, you're tempting God. You need to stop now. Stop it. Get rid of it. Amen. Critics, stop it. <laughs> Repent before God. Level five, oh Lord, have mercy. Amen. I've met many level fivers before. Never turns out well. Don't go there. <laughs>